the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com, that is, uh, for podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, you can also get podcasts and programs, and uh, social media, including Parler, at Dan Prof, uh, and uh, at Dan Prof Show, both. Uh, so let's get right to it, uh, updating the election goings-on, both in terms of counts in places like Georgia, and litigation in a handful of states. Start with Georgia, because we're up to three counties now that have had substantial election boo-boos over the last 72 hours. It started in Floyd County, where President Trump picked up about 800 votes, memory card they found. Then the same thing happened in Fayette County, where uh, Biden's lead was shaved by another 449 votes, a memory card discovered. And then uh, just this morning, David Schaefer, who is the head of the Republican Party in Georgia, tweeted out, one of our monitors discovered a 9,626 vote error in the DeKalb County hand count. 9,626 vote error. One batch was labeled 10,707 for Biden and 13 for Trump, an improbable margin even by DeKalb standards. The actual count for the batch was 1,081, off by a factor of 10, uh, for Biden and 13 for Trump. 9,626 vote error. Uh, You're talking about President Trump after the uh, Fayette County correction being down just under 13,000 votes. David Schaefer went on to tweet, had this counting error not been discovered, Biden would have gained enough votes from this one batch alone to cancel out Trump's gains from Fayette, Floyd and Walton counties. And if this is happening in uh, these counties, uh, one still wonders what may have gone on in Fulton County. Uh, Something else David Schaefer notes, Biden's margin of victory in this batch of votes, this is a batch of votes in um, DeKalb County, the margin of victory. 99.9%. That's better than Bashar al-Assad did in 2007 in his uh, election victory in Syria, 97.6%. Better than Raul Castro did in Cuba in 2008 when he got 99.4%. It matched Kim Jong-il's 2009 margin at 99.9%. So, boy, DeKalb County would be right at home in North Korea, wouldn't it? Or it could be one of those situations where we have... This very curious case of all of the electoral anomalies, the substantial ones, breaking in Joe Biden's favor. Really remarkable. Uh, We're getting to sort of Powerball level odds here at all these uh, anomalies breaking in one direction. There's also this, just speaking on anomalies, this is sort of interesting. 16 of 17 bellwether counties went for Trump. That hasn't happened in, it's never happened in 36 years of tracking these bellwether counties. From 1984 through 2016, spanning um, all the presidential elections in between, 17 U.S. counties in several states voted for the winning presidential candidate 
an astounding 148 of 153 times, including 100% five times for five different presidents, these bellwether counties. Five times for five different presidents. 100% of these 17 counties went for the victor. 84 for Reagan, 96 for Clinton, 2000 for Bush, 2012 for Obama, 2016 for Trump. This time, only one of 17 of the bellwether counties went for Biden. Trump won 16 of the 17 bellwether counties still lost. It's again, it's just one of these anomalies. It's not proof of anything. It's not proof of fraud. It doesn't uh, get you a recount in those counties or, you know, generally. And the, the implication is just that it is odd that somebody that amassed the most votes in U.S. presidential history would have such a poor performance in these bellwether counties that have a 30 two-year track record. Something else, uh, just in terms of the claims that continue to be made by the Trump campaign, this is rather interesting. There was uh, a Trump campaign surrogate named Brian Trasher, who was on the uh, Newsmax program, National Report program with Sean Kreisman last night. And um, this is what Mr. Trasher, again, a campaign surrogate, alleged about Dominion voting systems, because uh, the Wall Street Journal opined uh, yesterday about uh, Dominion voting systems. There's uh, vulnerability and then there's actually rigged. And those two things are different. Agree they're different. And uh, proving that uh, something was rigged is not easy to do. May take some time, may take more than two weeks. The Trump campaign obviously knows they're on the clock. Again, Sidney Powell is a serious person, successful appellate attorney. She is making uh, substantial claims that she believes they are going to be able to prove up. And I think that's filtering on down to campaign surrogates that are going on to outlets like Newsmax and repeating some of those claims, perhaps even with more specificity. Take a listen to what uh, Mr. Trasher had to say. Yes, Sean, and that's just one of many examples that we found throughout all of these uh, so-called swing states that were close uh, in the election count. Uh, but, you know, Amanda nailed it. Just now uh, outlining the irregularities and potential fraud we've seen. Uh, done manually by, by human beings. Uh, but now that we have seized the servers for Dominion that were over in Germany, and we're starting to get some raw data off of that. Uh, I'm just gonna, I know you guys uh, have a huge audience now, Sean. Congratulations for that. But I want everybody to listen to me. The things that are going to come out are going to shake the globalists to their very core. And when President Trump is declared the winner of this election, what you saw last weekend in the streets, uh, Trump supporters getting attacked in D.C., that's nothing. These people are coming for every city and every suburb, so be prepared, because this is happening. You need to protect yourself. Brian, let me go back to you. You said th- things are going to come out. What things? Well, like I said, the, the, the servers that were seized in Germany, why, first of all, why are American election ballots being counted overseas? That's a question that we have to get to the bottom of. But some of the raw data coming off of this is showing clear examples of how those were actually switched by an algorithm in the software uh, it was distributed for every single vote that go one way uh, for one candidate. They automatically add votes another. That's why you saw uh, even the New York Times own data tracker uh, on election night. Within 68 seconds, President Trump went from being ahead by tens of thousands of votes. Uh, I think it was in Wisconsin to all of a sudden being behind 10,000 votes in, in 68 seconds. That's it's a statistical anomaly. It cannot happen. So what you're pointing to specifically, you think a bombshell announcement is going to happen with Dominion voting systems, uh, the software that was used on Dominion specifically. Is that correct? Is that what I'm reading? The fact that Dominion and Smartmatic have, been, have become household names in America is freaking the Democrats out. You can see them on Twitter. You can see the media melting down um, just just absolutely amplifying their false claims that there's no uh, evidence. There's evidence that's being filed 
uh, in courts all over uh, the country. And, and today is the first time that uh, we're actually going to be appearing in federal court. All these little suits that got dismissed here and there were all state courts uh, run by Democrat hack judges. Uh, so we're about to see the real deal start. And this is going all over the Supreme Court, Sean. Well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. I mean, those are big claims and there's some charged rhetoric in there talking about the globalists and this and that. Just stick to the facts as you understand them to be, and the assertions that you're making, and when people will see evidence both in courts of law and the court of public opinion. But I will say Dominion Voting Systems uh, is being tested in Georgia right now, uh, and I guess you can attribute this all to human error potentially, but these memory cards being found in county after county, these substantial discrepancies. I mean, before the DeKalb County matter, uh, you're talking about just those two counties where there had been um, misreporting, a lack of processing memory cards with uh, ballots to be uh, counted, it represented about 8% of the spread between the two candidates in Georgia. That is not inconsequential before DeKalb County and this 9,600 vote error. Uh, just to, to, to sort of set the table, too, because once you start getting into these voting systems and these vendors, it gets a little, uh, you know, there's just a lot of palace intrigue. But Dominion and Scorecard are the software used to count ballots in about 30 states in U.S. elections. We talked about this to some extent uh, yesterday, trying to get a little bit more in. Cytel, which is also mentioned, is the international company that acts as a clearinghouse for the voting data. The data is harvested from elections in each state in the U.S., then sent, to real, then sent in real time to servers in the Cytel cloud in Spain and Germany, as that Trump campaign surrogate mentioned. It's here, as the Trump allegations go, that the vote was heavy, heavily manipulated in favor of Biden and to the detriment of Trump. Uh, when they were, the data was sent real time to the servers operated by Cytel. Then just after the election, there were rumors of the confiscation by of Cytel servers by the U.S. military, which sounded a bit black helicopterish. But that Trump campaign surrogate is saying that indeed ha- did happen. We'll see. We'll see. Trump people on the Trump campaign mentioning publicly they have access to hacked Dominion data. And uh, that includes Sidney Powell. So, as I said, there are some big allegations being made. There is a lot of backstory here that's a bit challenging to follow, even just with respect to drilling down on the relationships that are being denied, by the way, between a a voting hardware maker like Dominion and a software provider like Smartmatic. Uh, But the bottom line is you're starting to drill down at least with some specificity as to what the allegation is, where they say the fraud occurred and that they and where they think they can prove the fraud occurred. And then in the not too distant future, like within a couple of weeks on the outside, you're going to have to present that for scrutiny, both to judges as well as to the public. If you want to persuade either camp that what you're saying is true and there's no reason that uh, the Trump campaign shouldn't be given the opportunity to prove up, just as Democrats were given the opportunity to prove up about uh, Trump's alleged Russian collusion. And they failed. Trump campaign may fail, too. But uh, why not give them a uh, wide berth to pursue their legal rights to their ultimate and near term conclusion? It's uh, the American thing to do. This is seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show before we get to uh, big tech on the hill again whether or not that's much of a big deal anymore 
Uh, I wanted to uh, just continue the conversation about Dominion voting systems for a minute uh, and uh, fold in was something that uh, John Solomon, a couple of things that John Solomon had to say on Lou Dobbs's program the other evening. John Solomon, of course, the founder of uh, JTN.com, JustTheNews.com, friend of the show. Uh, here's what he told uh, Dobbs about um, the backstory of the principles of Dominion voting systems and how woven into the Democrat establishment in D.C. they are. Dominion was a donor to the Clinton Foundation. It's tied to the Democratic establishment through things like that. It was actually the Clinton Global Initiative, which was an arm of the foundation. Uh, It did hire as a lobbyist Nancy Pelosi's former top chief aide. So it is integrated into the Democratic establishment. It's also integrated into the bureaucratic establishment through these uh, security establishments in the Homeland Security Department. So this is a Democrat establishment connected company. Now it has people on all sides of the fence, but its Democratic roots are there. So the scenario that has the potential to be true that uh, Solomon and his team is investigating, as are others. Thus far, we've not found any evidence that computers change votes specifically. But Dominion's system was primed for people to understand how they could use it and calculate, hey, President Trump's up at 20,000 votes at 11 o'clock at night. Let's find 20,000 votes somewhere and run them through the system in the dark of night. That is a scenario that when we talk to voters, election observers, even some city election workers in Philadelphia and Detroit, that appears to be a realistic scenario. And I think we'll find out that Dominion, beyond its Democratic connections, its systems gave the Democratic establishment machines in these cities the capability to find votes late to try to make up a difference. I think that's the narrative we may find out to be true when we keep digging. Well, uh, and so just the news is going to keep digging as well. They should. It is. It's worth knowing. This is just sort of uh, an aside, but it is a bit humorous, at least to me, which is uh, important uh, that elections in Canada, they don't use Dominion voting systems. They use paper ballots counted by hand in front of scrutineers and have never used voting machines or electronic tabulators to count votes in our hundred year history. Just a timely tweet at Elections Canada is the uh, handle on Twitter. <laughs> it's the one idea from uh, Western uh, Democrat socialist nations that the Democrat socialists here won't adopt, will they? trying to get an accurate handle on elections and counts and so forth. The the glorious digital revolution will uh, ensure the integrity of U.S. elections. How's that going? Uh, this, of course, uh, folds in nicely with big tech on the Hill yesterday. Dorsey and Zuckerberg. Uh, and, uh, you know, for those for, you know, those who haven't paid attention to this uh, long running series of these big tech companies, appearing on the Hill to be excoriated by speechifying senators and bob and weave and you know, offer their bromides uh, to try to stave off any real action from the federal government against their companies. Uh, Jack Dorsey is the guy who founded Twitter and then went to live in a forest. And Mark Zuckerberg is uh, the Muppet who founded Facebook. OK, you got that straight. Uh, Ted Cruz uh, started in on Jack Dorsey, as he is wont to do in this long-running series. But I don't want to focus so much on on uh, the New York Post story, which was the last iteration of their exchanges. The connection to the discussion we were just having about the prospect of voter fraud and what Twitter and Facebook are doing to run interference to the kind of conversations we're having on this show, where we're not uh, making wild conclusions about what did or didn't happen. We're raising questions based on uh, raising questions that have a legitimate basis to be raised and uh, 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 I think a reasonable expectation to be answered. And so Ted Cruz, you know, walking Jack Dorsey 
right into an ambush, apparently unbeknownst to Jack Dorsey, who's sort of half interested and even appearing by Zoom. Uh, The question, does voter fraud exist? Does voter fraud exist? I I don't know for certain. Uh, Are you an expert in voter fraud? No, I'm not. Well, why then is Twitter right now putting purported warnings on virtually any statement about voter fraud? We're, we're simply linking to a broader conversation so that people have more information. No, no, you're not. You put up a page that says, quote, voter fraud of any kind is exceedingly rare in the United States. That's not linking to a broader conversation. That's taking a disputed policy position. And you're a publisher when you're doing that. You're entitled to take a policy position, but you don't get to pretend you're not a publisher and get a special benefit under Section 230 as a result. Mm-hmm. Then... Ted Cruz gives him a couple of hypotheticals. Is this statement something you'd flag, saying it needed more context, or you challenge, you know, put the uh, the, the the Twitter tags on uh, these statements as it relates to uh, voter fraud? Mr. Dorsey, would the following statement violate Twitter's policies? Quote: Absentee ballots remain the largest source of potential voter fraud. Uh, I imagine that we would label it so that people can have more context in okay. How about this quote? Quote, third party organizations, candidates and political activists. Voter fraud is particularly possible where, quote, third party organizations, candidates and political party activists are involved in, quote, handling absentee ballots. Would you flag that as potentially misleading? I don't I don't you don't know the specifics of how we might enforce that. But I imagine um, a lot of these would would uh, have a label pointing people to a bigger conversation. Well, you're right. You would label them because you've taken the political position right now that voter fraud doesn't exist. I would note both of those quotes come from the Carter Baker Commission on Federal Election Reform. That is Democratic President Jimmy Carter and former Secretary of State James Baker. And Twitter's position is essentially voter fraud does not exist. Zing. Those quotes taken from the Carter Baker Commission report. Uh, I don't know how Jack Dorsey, you know, you think he was just making up those quotes out of the air. He wasn't walking you down a path. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what's what to make of Jack Dorsey and uh, Zuckerberg. I, they're just wildly unimpressive multi-billionaires, aren't they? Either that or they're sort of evil geniuses who are great at playing aloof and dumb or some combination of the two. I don't know. But, uh, you know, running interference to quell any questions, because what did I say before and have said since the outset that Sidney Powell and the Trump campaign legal team have two cases they're prosecuting, one in courts of law in a half a dozen states and the other in the court of public opinion. And Twitter and Facebook are doing a good and others, Google, doing a good job of trying to suppress the case from being presented in the court of public opinion. And it's an issue. It doesn't eliminate the case from moving forward. It doesn't eliminate all the conversations. But it certainly has influence. Something else Jack Dorsey doesn't think Twitter has. Remember, the last go around it was whether or not he thought Twitter had the uh, ability to influence the outcome of an election. And he said, no. Isn't he cute? Like uh, one of those uh, tobacco company execs from a bygone era who said nicotine wasn't addictive. That's where we're at. And uh, I'll tell you what, but before the end of the hour, I'll get to the exchange between Josh Howley and Mark Zuckerberg as well, because it's an important one. It's an important one on the merits. But one of the other things I think uh, I feel, well, I think you get from how many times these guys have been on the Hill and how little has occurred is they feel like this is their obligation to go to the Hill to protect their company Uh, to play the game with these senators, including the Republican ones, including the very good barristers like Howley and Cruz, 
because nothing is really going to happen to them. And uh, that's the frustration that I think a lot of Americans have with these show hearings that nothing comes of them. And then what happens? You get jaded, you get exasperated, you get frustrated, you stop paying attention, you give up, they carry on. And, you know, their carrying on has great impact on the quality of life you get to carry on. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We uh, turn our attention back to uh, COVID, and specifically COVID vaccines, with the uh, potential Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, both in the offing. Uh, and the question that uh, has been raised really since the outset and the discussion of vaccines is game planning, the prioritization for the distribution of vaccines, if and when they were to come online, seem to be hopefully eminently close to that. So that question needs to be revisited, particularly because there are differences of opinion among people that are equally credentialed and thoughtful. The National Academy of Sciences has proposed a four phased distribution plan that puts the high risk at the front of the line. Frontline healthcare workers, first responders, uh, older adults in nursing homes, people with comorbidities, for example. That's not for example. That's the plan. Um, By contrast, though, it's sort of interesting. A group of researchers at Johns Hopkins and at USC have argued that vaccinating the young who have the least to fear from COVID and suffer most under social restrictions is a better idea because that would actually do more to curb the spread and ultimately prevent deaths. Um, which uh, p- progression makes more sense. And once we agree on the progression, uh, how does uh, distribution happen in a sensible and equitable way? To help us explore those questions, we're pleased to be joined again by Alex Tabarrok, the Madden Chair in Economics for the Mercatus Center and uh, Professor of Economics for George Mason University and also the co-publisher of uh, the Great Marginal Revolution blog with uh, Tyler Cohen, also George Mason. Uh, Professor Tabarrok, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Uh, great to be here. And um, there was more uh, good news uh, this morning. I don't know if you saw, but the Pfizer vaccine, uh, 94% effective in the elderly, yes. uh, which we were waiting to learn. Right, right. No, so, um, you know, all the good news on the on the getting to a uh, vaccine that is safe and effective um, is encouraging. But then these questions about uh, what do we do when we have it and how do we do it uh, that you explored in uh, your piece uh, in Bloomberg, uh, I want to get to before we even get to um, one idea that you had about the distribution. What about the progression and the disagreement among, uh, as I just outlined, Johns Hopkins and USC researchers versus the National Academy of Sciences about what the lineup should be? Yeah, so. Uh, I mean, there's different views here. The main thing I think we need to do is just get it approved. Uh, so uh, Pfizer needs to uh, submit a um, request to the FDA, and the, we need to put pressure on the FDA to uh, approve this uh, vaccine. And then we can talk about just making more of it. Uh, that's also going to be critical. The more uh, we make, then the less these issues of distribution come. So the antidote 
to disputes over distribution is more capacity. And that's really what the entire world needs. We're going to need more capacity, not just for the Pfizer vaccines, not just for the Moderna vaccines, but for some of the other vaccines coming down the line. So if we can just make more, then distribution becomes less of an issue. Well, uh, fair enough. But and, and I know some of this is being game planned out by these big pharma companies because of the uh, storage requirements. For example, I, I believe, if I'm recalling correctly from my conversation with Dr. Henry Miller, the founder of the Office of Biotechnology at the FDA, that the uh, Pfizer vaccine, potential vaccine, has to be stored at like minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's a real issue in terms of storage. So none of the vaccine uh, doses are, sp- are spoiled. Correct. That's exactly right. And that's one reason why I think uh, going for healthcare workers, uh, first responders, and nursing homes is actually a good idea. Um, first, as other people have pointed out, these are people who are at high risk of getting uh, COVID. Second, for uh, healthcare workers, they're also at high risk of spreading COVID, particularly to vulnerable populations. But third, the third reason for going for these categories first is that a lot of healthcare workers are in uh, limited locations. You know, they're at hospitals, uh, which typically do have cold storage capacity. Uh, the same thing is true for first responders, for, uh, you know, police and fire and for nursing home residents. These are like fixed locations. So uh, for distributing a vaccine, it's good if you can just go to a limited number of locations and vaccinate everyone there in one shot. That's going to be easier than sending it out to uh, physicians who then give it to their patients and so forth. So I think if we want to get the vaccine out fast, it's good to go to a limited number of locations, vaccinate a lot of people at those locations, and you also need fewer personnel. Right. So if you can vaccinate a lot of people at a hospital or a nursing home, you don't need that many personnel uh, as opposed to if you try and vaccinate uh, the population at large. Uh, When we come back with uh, Alex Haberach, I want to talk a little bit more about um, uh, the idea of using lotteries as a uh, fair uh, way to distribute uh, vaccines when they come online as well. More with uh, Alex Haberach. He is the Madden Chair in Economics for the Mercatus Center. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University. We'll be right back. Show. We're speaking with Alex Tabarrok, Madden Chair in Economics for the Mercatus Center, Professor of Economics for George Mason University, and also the co-publisher of the Marginal Revolution blog, marginalrevolution.com, with Tyler Cohen, a professorial colleague of his. I uh, wanted to uh, continue our discussion about uh, the uh, distribution of uh, these vaccines that are hopefully uh, uh, very near in the offing from both Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, you write it in your piece in Bloomberg uh, about the case for a COVID lottery um, how would uh, a lottery work in terms of distributing the vaccine, and what are some of the benefits you think from uh, choosing this distribution mechanism? Yeah, exactly right. So we're not going to have enough vaccine to vaccinate everybody, even in just the you know the first phase group, the uh, the healthcare workers, first responders, and so forth. We're not going to have enough to do all of them right away. So what we suggest is that we have a lottery. 
Uh, there's a couple of advantages to a lottery. Uh, first of all, it's fair. Uh, everyone has an equal chance of being uh, vaccinated. The second advantage is that we can run the lottery over these uh, places like nursing homes and uh, hospitals and so forth and randomize. Uh, we can randomly choose, you know, which ones are going to be vaccinated first. And that means if we collect data, we can compare uh, what happens to the places which were vaccinated first compared to those which were only vaccinated uh, uh, later. And that data is going to be really, really useful uh, to help us better understand exactly how the vaccine works, what, if any, the safety issues are, um, who it works best for, and so forth. So limited capacity has one silver lining, and that is if we randomize distribution, we can treat that like a big clinical trial, and we can learn more information even as we are pumping out uh, as much vaccine as possible to vaccinate as many people as possible, we can still learn more if we randomize when we do that. You also uh, suggest a, a, a benefit in terms of legitimacy, since uh, this is such a, a politicized matter now. Uh, as long as the process is transparent, the lottery is the lottery uh, dist- administration is transparent. It would create a trustworthiness by saying this is how we're going to do it. This is uh, OK. Here we go. This is the lottery. And now these are the results. And this this is how it's going to be distributed. So it creates confidence in, in, in terms of the eminent fairness of of this distribution method. Yeah, that's right. People understand the lottery and there's a history of uh using lotteries in similar circumstances. So when we had the draft, you know, the Vietnam draft, a, uh, a lottery, a draft, you know, you, you literally were picking balls out of a uh, lottery machine uh, to find out whether you were drafted yeah. or not. Charter school um, admission I'd rather, stuff like that. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather get a vaccine than be drafted. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But so there is a history of uh, using lotteries as a fairness mechanism. Uh, I wanted to get your take on something that Holman Jenkins wrote over at The Wall Street Journal, too, about uh, the vaccine announcements, reason to be hopeful, uh, even with the colder weather. But uh, he writes, the universal trumpeting of confirmed case counts remains an insidious problem. Consider a few numbers. Eighty percent of cases are mild or asymptomatic. They run their course in 15 days. Transmission is believed to require 15 minutes of contact with within six feet. You put these numbers together. And if infections were really only 11 million in the United States since the epidemic began, you'd be crazy to worry about COVID. Your implied chances of catching it from a random encounter would be nil. And he uh, goes on to say, like, he's not saying that people do this calculation explicitly, but they do something like it. And now the media is trying to repair their own cognitive dissonance on the topic of confirmed case counts as the as the the leading indicator of uh, lethality and spread. Yeah, I mean, Look, we're dealing if you get covid, you're probably going to recover. Right. right. But uh, a lot of people get it. A lot of people are still going to die. Right. That's just the uh, logic of, you know, uh, whatever. It's a point five percent death rate or whatever the death rate happens to be. Uh, look, a lot of people, most people recover, but still a lot of people are going to die. Um, so I think that's the number to, to think about is, you know, hospitalizations are going up. The death count is going up. And when you just, when everyone is getting this thing and lots and lots of people are getting it, then this is a real problem. And of course, we know it's an especially a problem for uh, the elderly people and people with comorbidities. Uh, most people in the United States have some kind of comorbidity. So there is uh, some risk 
even if you are, you know, middle-aged, you know, like myself, uh, there are some comorbidities there. But, but you know, I think with the right, I'm yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I just, I just wanted to 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 let him build on his point, but I'll reference it because I think it's an important one. You know, sort of the lessons learned, and I understand some of this was um, heuristic in nature, but but there doesn't seem to be a real desire to uh, learn some, perhaps some big lessons. And Holman Jenkins goes on to say, we made an incomprehensible mistake we would have never made with the flu, confusing confirmed cases with true prevalence. Uh, The worst effect isn't that reliance on confirmed cases cause Americans to overestimate the death risk. The worst is that it causes them to underestimate by an order of magnitude the likelihood that the person next to them is a transmitter. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's difficult to say what the uh, look we made lots and lots of mistakes. Right. I mean, a huge mistake was um, not focusing on the nursing homes right away. Right. That was a tremendous uh, mistake. We have uh, made a huge mistake in the CDC and the uh, FDA uh, in not allowing testing right at the beginning. If we had had a overwhelming number of tests, we could have driven the rate down right at the beginning, as other countries have done, as South Korea has done, as uh, New Zealand has done, as Taiwan has done. We could have driven that rate down. But instead, you know, Trump thought, you know, more testing means more cases. I don't want that. So there wasn't a big push to uh, go for uh, testing. Uh, fortunately, Trump administration made a lot of mistakes, but they did one thing right, and that was Operation Warp Speed. Uh, Operation Warp Speed has been a tremendous uh, success, and now we just need to uh, get these vaccines. The science has been amazing. Uh, The science has been done in record time, and now we just need to follow up and follow up with the distribution and the actual vaccination. We need to get shots in arms. I think that's the goal right now, to justify the tremendous speed at which the science was done. We now need the regulators and uh, the the distribution system. We need everyone to step up and make sure that that science was, is, is justified by getting shots in arms. And as you said uh, at the outset, keep the pressure on the bureaucracy not to uh, unduly slow things down. He is Al- exactly. Yeah, he is Alex Tabarak, Modern Chair in Economics at the, for the Mercatus Center, Professor of Economics, George Mason University, co-publisher of the Marginal Revolution, marginalrevolution.com blog. Professor Tabarak, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to talk. Take care. Profshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, returning to our discussion from the top of the program, we ran out of time to get to uh, two other exchanges I wanted you to hear with uh, Zuckerberg during Big Tech's appearance on the Hill yesterday. One was Josh Howley, a Missouri Republican, Josh Howley, to Mark Zuckerberg on uh, this information he got from a Facebook whistleblower about the internal tasks system that Facebook runs, the indication that perhaps Facebook is coordinating with both Twitter and Google when it comes to the regulation of content. Take a listen. Is it your testimony that you do not communicate with Twitter or Google about content moderation, about individuals, websites, phrases, hashtags to ban? Just yes or no. Senator, we do not coordinate our policies. Do your Facebook content moderation teams communicate with their counterparts at Twitter or Google? Senator, I'm not aware of anything specific, but I, I think it would be 
probably pretty normal for people to talk to their their peers and colleagues in the industry. It would be normal, but you don't do it? No, I'm I'm saying that I'm not aware of any particular conversation, but... I would expect that some level of, of communication probably happens, ah, but that is different from coordinating uh, what our policies are or our responses in specific instances. Well, Holly followed up by saying, "Okay, well, that's interesting. Would you be since this is a searchable portal, this uh, tasks internal frame that uh, Facebook uses? Can you uh, give us the particulars of the decisions that were made as they're so tagged here?" where you have consultations with Twitter and uh, and Google. And he's sort of hemmed and hawed about that, so it's a little unclear. I mean, yes, if you can prove coordination, collusion, to borrow a word, then perhaps you have a stronger case to remove Section 230 protections, which is under the uh, Communications Decency Act, which is where Josh Howley and I think Ted Cruz want to go. It was just interesting yesterday because essentially what you had was Howley and Cruz arguing for more transparency and the Democrats arguing for less of both. It was remarkable. For example, DiFi, Senator Dianne Feinstein, spent her time with Zuckerberg uh, expressing her concerns about uh, the Stop the Steal group page on Facebook that had quickly grew to 300,000 plus members before Facebook took it down because they were uh, trying to you know, protect the populace from civil unrest based on misinformation, they term it, that was being posted on the Stop the Steal group page. That was the basis for Mark Zuckerberg playing to his audience, saying, oh, I'm very concerned about misinformation, Senator Feinstein. And yes, uh, we want to slow the spread, to borrow a phrase of misinformation, to uh, sort of a a form of safetyism, he was arguing, to protect uh, people from threats of violence or from the incitement of violence and so on and so forth, which is what we did by uh, delisting the Stop the Steal Facebook group page. Two very different ideas about uh, the role of social media in a free society, the ongoing role that these companies have, the ongoing power that they have, and what, if any, regulatory action should be taken. And it was nicely on display yesterday. I don't know what will come of it. Part of that, I think, will pretend, will, will pour, be based on what the ultimate outcome is in the 2020 presidential election. But um, it's at least the debate that we should be having and an understanding of where the two sides are as presented by their standard bearers in the Senate. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. The forgotten men that forgotten man specifically that Amity Schley's wrote about that made their presence felt in 2016 to elect Donald Trump the president of the United States. Have they now been or will they be forgotten again? To help us answer that question, we're pleased to be rejoined by Pedro Gonzalez, assistant editor of American Greatness, amgreatness.com, Mount Vernon fellow of the Center for American Greatness. Pedro, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Forgotten again. Uh, This is very much, I think, you're going in a direction that um, Conrad Black was going in in a piece that he wrote for Epoch Times, that uh, Trumpism without Trump is uh, 
neither possible nor actually desirable, but let's just focus on the possible. The idea that the uh, 74 million, uh, many of the 74 million people that voted for Trump in on November 3rd, that uh, they are just going to easily be uh, moved over into whoever parrots Trump over the next two, four, eight years. That's very much in doubt, isn't it? It is. I think Trump has changed the game in a number of ways. One of them is that he is such a celebrity, that he's such a charismatic character that I think we're sort of expecting the next person to be able to, to match his charisma, which is a hard show to follow. Sorry to interrupt, but there's something else I wanted you to comment too as part okay. of this as sort of a corollary, which is, you know, uh, Trump built on the percentage of minority voters from the Latino community, the percentage of voters from the black community that a Republican presidential candidate got best in 60 years. And so, um, you know, naturally, we're just going to continue building on that and it will build on it even more if we have somebody who uh, checks more identity markers than Trump did, like a Marco Rubio or a Nikki Haley. And that is also very much in doubt, because if it was that easy, then we would have had a Marco Rubio as the nominee, or we would have others who check more identity boxes being doing a better job helping the Republican Party advance the percentages of those communities voting for Republicans pre-2016. Yes. No, that's exactly right. I think this is an issue now is that because Trump did do better in some respects with primarily with Latinos, that now we're looking to people like Marco Rubio. But that's just a mistake, I think. And what's being missed and what I've written about is the fact that the largest part of his coalition was working class whites. And yet they are the group that no one wants to acknowledge. They're the group that take a back seat to when we create these like platinum plans specifically for black voters. We create the American Dream Plan, which ironically excluded everyone but Latinos from the American Dream Plan. We create things like this. We're not acknowledging the largest part of our base. And if we're going to create these sort of race based plans for groups, then we have to also believe that there's not a single downscale white community in this country that could also use a capital infusion, that there's not a single white family that could use scholarships for the children to go to better schools, which the American Dream Plan provides. And it's interesting to note, um, taking constituencies for granted. Well, uh, Mark Penn had a good piece in the Wall Street Journal about, uh, you know, his overall uh, takeaway was about how moderate the electorate is generally, nationally. But as he looked into the exit polling with respect to Trump, it's very interesting. With so much focus on white women, white suburban women, suburban women generally, Trump's margin of victory among white women increased from 11 to 13 points. But his advantage among white men narrowed from 30 to 23, one from plus 30 in 2016 to plus 23. For So for those people who said whoever was voting for Trump and did vote for Trump in 2016 will be with them again in 2020, a uh, significant outside the margin of error portion of white men were not. Right. If you compare 2016 exit polls from CNN to 2020 exit polls, that were compiled by, it, it's a, it was a project in partnership between the Associated Press and Fox News. It's actually pretty comprehensive. If you compare those two data sets, what you have is 71% of non-college white men, so working class white men, in 2016 went for Trump, compared to 64% in 2020. That is significant. This is the group of people that I think gets made fun of the most. You know, the, the uneducated white men who work with their hands and vote for Trump because they don't know any better. If you're losing them, there's a problem. And I think my theory is that the problem is we we abandoned economic populism for all and we kind of started to resort to gimmicks, you know, criminal justice reform, these kind of plans for different groups courting rappers, like bringing like Ice Cube into the White House, bragging about how he was the one that asked for $500 billion exclusively for black communities, and then asking Bloomberg to run a story about that. This is stuff where if you voted for Trump in 2016, and you're living in the Rust Belt, 
not a whole lot has changed for you. And then your political capital is being used for these kind of games that you know people are playing. I think it might make you either stay home or vote for Biden out of resentment. I think this is a question that we should be asking. And it's one that I've found two reactions, disbelief, and the other one is anger. And those are two bad reactions. And, and, and there's some overlay, I think, with this number, too. I mean, you know, you can cut, to obviously, the uh, crosstabs a lot of different ways. But among uh, moderates, self-identified moderates, Trump lost that cohort by 12 points in 2016. He lost it by 30 points in 2020. That was the biggest delta of any crosstab, at least that uh, Mark Penn looked at. And uh, his conclusion, moderate men swung the race to Mr. Biden. When you're saying moderate men, I I believe you're necessarily including a lot of, uh, quote unquote, working class men who uh, are pragmatic and transactional, not philosophical in nature when it comes to their vote. I think that's right. Yes, that, that's a really good way to view them. It's, what did you do for me since I voted for you? Right. Where's the infrastructure plan? 2017, there was an array of polling that showed that two-thirds of Americans said that the most important promise, the single most important promise that Trump made was the infrastructure plan. And that never happened. That took a backseat to criminal justice reform, second, and then first to the tax cut plan that was created by Gary Cohen, who was the former president and COO of Goldman Sachs. So I think those are two indicators that we're being kind of taken advantage of here. We voted for this guy and nothing's really happening for us. We're seeing some marginal increases in income in some places, but it's kind of like we were overpromised and underdelivered. I think that that has actually played a huge factor in this. And I, I think you also saw independence break for Biden uh, in this election that few, I think fewer of them voted for Trump than in 2016. So again, I think you're seeing this kind of like, like you said, the pragmatic voter kind of saying, well, we tried Trump, now we're going to try this guy. And forgotten, you know, the forgotten men and women yeah. or forgotten man, to borrow from Amity Schley's. Um, that's an, from a policy perspective, but it's, there's also something else that's important, and that is the explicit overture to particular populations. There are you know, differences in the way that people live in America and how people perceive themselves. And so you have to make some specific appeals that vary a little bit from coalition partner to coalition partner. And so when right. you, you're making overtures to black and Latino families, great, super. Uh, obviously, we, right. I, I wish we got 100 percent of black and Latino families, not uh, 12 and 32, respectively. But but it also it, but when you 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 advance an issue like school choice, which he spent a lot of time in the last half of this year talking about and became part of the conversation rallies with the school shutdowns. And that's great. And so here's what I'm going to do, what we can do at the federal level to essentially voucherize the Department of Education and provide scholarships. But as you were saying, yeah. that's an opportunity to make an appeal to yes, black and Latino families in urban centers and also lower to middle income families of all races, including whites, the white working class uh, in suburban, exurban, rural areas as well. And that was an opportunity that perhaps was missed to remind those constituents that he is still out there fighting for their interests and has ideas for improving their lives. That's exactly right. So I live in the Midwest in this town in Ohio that's 96 percent white, I think 2 percent of the population is black, even even less of that is is uh, Latino. I'm obviously Latino. So what does the platinum plan or the American Dream plan do for my 96% white town in which the poverty level is higher than the state average? I'm as the odd Latino in this little uh, Midwestern town. I'm I'm better off than not much better off, but I'm better off than pretty much all of my immediate neighbors. To be honest, I kind of felt a little bit of shame when Trump announced the American Dream plan because I. You know, my, I see my neighbors who have Trump, port, uh, Trump flags on their porches who are really struggling. And here I'm going to get 
you know, a scholarship for my son to go to school if, if this thing would have been enacted and stuff like that. Just because of the fact that I'm, you know, I'm part of a, a, an ethnic group that the administration is trying to court, but my neighbors who are struggling would get nothing. In fact, 96% of my town would get nothing. And I think that there, there is a, a kind of resentment that you create, um, not just for the Trump administration, but also I, I would be, I, I would be concerned that you create a resentment for groups, basically, um, when you're kind of throwing all these different groups of bone and conspicuously excluding one group then that one group is probably going to start feeling resentful towards the other groups. Yeah, I mean, it's just and, I, yeah. it, it, this is such an important piece, and, and it's just a, it's a mistake. As, as good as Trump was in terms of advancing a sort of a populist message that at least attempted to be colorblind, you, you just it's so easy to fall into the trap of the left by starting with from their identitarian premises and then getting their pernicious identitarian conclusions, which uh, disenfranchise people that could otherwise be in your camp. I, it's just a siren song from the left, uh, at least for conservatives, I think. And I think that's where you're going with this. So I appreciate the piece and uh, your thoughtfulness as always. Pedro Gonzalez, assistant editor of American Greatness, amgreatness.com. And a Mount Vernon fellow of the Center for American Greatness as well. Pedro, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. No time for a summer friend. No time for the love you send. Seasons change and so do. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Continuing with our discussion of the forgotten and uh, to the extent they remember the ridiculed, thinking about working lower to middle income families in America who... Um, you know, maybe headed by a Johnny Lunchpail, head of the household in terms of a provider, and uh, believe in anachronistic ideas like uh, masculinity and femininity. Pleased to be joined by Sophia Carbone. Uh, she's written a piece about uh, gender roles, and she's the founder of uh, Bucalupo. Uh, that's a website. This uh, against the backdrop of uh, Harry Styles in a dress on the cover of Vogue. Isn't this passe? Didn't Dennis Rodman do this a couple of decades ago? Men in dresses is somehow risque, is so uh, cutting edge. It seems like the uh, purveyors of haute couture are positively stayed to me. And uh, Candace Owens receiving a bit of uh, social media backlash for suggesting men should be men and women should be women, which, again, is also not groundbreaking stuff. Sophia, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So, um, yeah, what of... Seeming to me, maybe I'm underestimating it, but the uh, attention attendant to Harry Styles, this uh, androgynous pop star wearing a dress on the cover of Vogue, uh, isn't it also contrived? Isn't this uh, also forced? And it almost uh, speaks to me, not that identitarian politics is going anywhere, but um, it may be running out of uh, new ideas, new ways to shock to advance the flag. Oh, 100 percent. And traditional gender roles are the foundation of Western civilization and Western culture, that and the nuclear family. Although there are men and women do have biological and psychological predispositions and tendencies towards like women being more caring and more nurturing and feminine and wearing dresses and men, you know, being more masculine, the providers, uh, physically more capable and there are legitimate exceptions to gender norms that are like slight inclination towards the opposite sex's tendencies. 
But Harry Styles on the cover of Vogue is not that. Like, this is pure propaganda. You know, you're putting someone who many, many young men look up to and even more young women adore, putting him on a dress in the cover of Vogue. You're telling young men to abandon their masculine tendencies because they think this is now what society and what women desire. And you're telling young women that what they should desire is these emasculated men. And when you have a society where you're just shaming masculinity, you're not allowing men to be providers and you're not supporting them in a more dominant, successful role, that's a total recipe for disaster. Yeah, it seems to me they feel like they're in a bit of trouble. Uh, The sort of propaganda that you're describing, combined with the effort to silence Abigail Schreier and her book, and sort of end the distribution of her book about uh, transgenderism as sort of a social contagion among girls, a real attack on femininity. You know, why are you trying to silence uh, somebody making a case that uh, doesn't comport with your ideology if you're afraid that her case may prove persuasive? Yes, 100 percent. I mean, you know, you see it with the Candace Owens, like you said, the backlash she's getting on social media. And Candace is 100 percent right. You know, she said in her tweet about Harry Styles, there's no society that can survive without strong men and that this is an outright attack. And it 100 percent is. And they try to push back and they try to censor anyone who has differing views. And I find it really funny because feminism is always like, well, you know, strong, independent women should be able to speak. But you see, you know, like Abigail and like Candace and even I've gotten backlash on Twitter for tweets and like this article and stuff like that. And if you have a different opinion from the liberal institutions and from feminism, you're no longer a strong, independent woman that has a voice. Well, right. And the other thing, too, I mean, it's all just confused. It's also muddled, you know, when you're trying to uh, change people's innate nature. It's going to be muddled, I suppose. But on the one hand, and, and, and it's all political, and that makes it even more of a mess. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, we want to eliminate these uh uh, notions of male and female from a bygone era. On the other hand, we hear some of these same people talking about uh, the need for men to stand up and be good fathers in so many homes in which they're not present in their children's lives. We need to hear them talk about men needing to uh, you know, pay their child support and their alimony like a good provider should if a relationship yeah. breaks up. So so I'm, I'm confused. Which is it? It doesn't matter. And uh, they should uh, embrace their their uh, latent feminism, or they need to play these traditional roles and own up to their responsibilities. You're 100% correct. The left can't figure out which one they want. They want what is convenient to them in their narrative at the time. They want it to switch back and forth. And if you're not allowing men to be successful and to flourish in society, even if that means they're the majority of um, people in STEM jobs, Like, that's not okay. We have to force women into STEM jobs and have equal. It's like, no, men are the providers. They tend to gravitate towards those type of jobs just because it's their biological tendency. And, you know, that would allow them, if they were allowed to go ahead and follow their instincts and have male confidence, they could pay that child support. They would, you wouldn't even you would probably see a decline in the need to even pay it because you would have a stronger nuclear family and society overall. And when you have a better gender balance, your nuclear family is going to be stronger, and so is your society. Well, what do you think exposes this uh, for the folly that it is among uh, you know people that uh, don't have time to pay attention to the sort of things that emanate from 
uh, identity studies programs on college campuses? It, will it be uh, perhaps uh, putting women uh, women's sports in real jeopardy at the at the at the high school and the collegiate level? Uh, would it be something like that, or, or or do you see some sort of other awakening here to, uh, as I say, to to uh, to provide a death blow to this uh, silliness? I think that it. I think that seeing the effect on you know women's sports in high school and like you said, has definitely has had a degree of awakening effect. But you see also with the propaganda of, you know, some parents when they see their children, younger parents um, that have grown up mostly in this propaganda the past few decades, you see them, their three-year-old son puts on a dress once and they want to start injecting them with the hormones. And I think those stories have been a wake-up call to a lot of traditionalists even just in a very moderate sense of the word. Um, but I, I do believe that it, though, Harry Styles on the cover of Vogue, I think, will even be a wake-up call. Just having something, the propaganda and the less ridiculousness with gender and uh, transgenders and hormones and gender roles is getting so extreme that I think it, it definitely is going to be coming to a head pretty soon because there, the more and more people that I talk to, and when I send this article out, especially to um, older generations, they don't even realize that this is really happening. Mm-hmm. The left is very good at like who they, they're very good with targeted propaganda, and they make sure that their audience is it's going to be well received on, and they're not going to get much backlash. And anyone who does give them backlash, like we mentioned earlier, is going to be silenced. But it, it's starting to get to a point where um, it, it's it's getting such it's going to be such a big narrative and such a big issue that you're not going to be able to silence it. She is Sophia Carbone, founder of Bukalupo, bukalupo.com, uh, the piece she was referencing, End the War on Traditional Gender Roles. Sophia, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We return to the topic of COVID and uh, another study out on mask wearing this uh, building upon the study that we talked about a bit earlier in the week from the icon school of medicine in mount sinai new york that was uh, 1800 marines volunteers for this study on lockdowns and mask wearing and uh, you'll recall the result was that those who are part of the control group meaning not locked down no mask wearing requirements and the like actually were infected at a lower rate than those who were locked down, surveilled by supervisors, wore double cloth masks and, you know, very regimented, even more so than their lives already are as Marines. And yet the incidence of infection in the environment for the experimental group was slightly higher than the control group. Well, this uh, tweeted out by our friend 
uh, Martin Kaldorf, Professor Kaldorf from Harvard Medical School. In a large Danish randomized trial, 1.8% of mask wearers and 2.1% non-mask wearers were infected. The 95% confidence interval is compatible with a 46% reduction to a 23% increase in infection. So either modest or no benefit to the mask wearer is the net net of this study that included 3,030 participants randomly assigned to the recommendation to wear masks. 2,994 were assigned to control. 4,862 completed the study, and uh, the data points that Kaldorf highlighted are the relevant ones. For more on this, lockdowns and mask wearing as uh, the way to stop the spread, to preserve life until vaccines come online, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. John Bao. He's an emergency room physician and the chief medical officer of uh, Remote Health Solutions. Dr. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure you've uh, seen or or heard about uh, these um, recent studies. So, I mean, I'm always fascinated. The politicians is one group, but the medical professionals who are the men and women of science, and we're finding out hardly insulated from politics, they are made aware of these studies from reputable organizations with uh, the tried and true double blind scientific protocols, and they just ignore the fact that there is uh, no benefit being found to lockdown policies and mask wearing. One of the things that's been very frustrating during the whole pandemic and dealing with uh, COVID-19 is the fact that there's been so much political interpretation of medicine that uh, we as a medical profession have, uh, in a lot of instances, sort of caved to political pressure in a large degree. And and it's really frustrating because we sort of build ourselves up as evidence-based individuals and as an evidence-based society. And so you start talking about what is the evidence out there. And we've known for a long time that there is some, but modest, benefit for wearing masks in many situations, you know, whether it's in the operating room or, or whatever else that we've had studies looked at before. And so now we look at this situation of, well, what benefit does wearing a mask provide? And the studies say, you know, masks worn and worn well, like you mentioned here before, there is some maybe modest benefit, and it's really about trapping those large airborne particles. And so does it help? We think, we think some, but obviously the data says um, um, modest modest amount. Is it helpful in certain situations? Absolutely. I tell people, uh, I look at things a couple of ways. One, what is the data showing us? Is is there some benefit? Yeah, maybe there is some benefit. And what do I do in my daily practice? Because I see sick patients before COVID, I see sick patients during COVID, and I see a lot of COVID patients right now, um, every single day. And my practice overall has changed a little bit, but not dramatically so. Before um, any of the pandemic and any of the the new emphasis that came from politics, my practice was to um, uh, wash or sanitize my hands as I went into every room and as I came out of every room. And those people who were sick or if I was sick, a mask went on um, uh, to be able to drop the, to reduce the airborne droplets. And um, uh, in certain situations and, and when needed, I'd wear gloves. And if I needed a protective gown, PPE, then that uh, came on and off as well. And so if I look at that, and I, I never get sick. I see sick patients all the time. Those same sort of common sense things I think are important to remember. Wash your hands, wear a mask if, if appropriate. But the idea that uh, we start looking at now is mandating globally and without really sort of analyzing the scenario or the situation. And then on top of that, being able to uh, lose freedoms and then to be isolated, quarantined, and included risk or increased risk that come with that as well. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's just the, the overstatement of any discernible benefit, I mean, to the point of almost claiming it's a panacea. It's 
It's uh, yeah. that's that's the thing. There's just no humility with these pronouncements from politicians and and some of these politicized TV doctors, too, to the point now where in Pennsylvania you have a mask mandate uh, from the state that you're supposed to wear a mask inside your home. If you have people in your home who are not uh, part of your normal household, I mean, the the intrusion per the discernible benefit uh, seems to be comp- you know, pretty stilted. When we come back, though, uh, we'll pick it up there. And I also, because we want to cover the expanse of the issues here, uh, interesting uh, piece in the uh, Wall Street Journal about the bright side for teenagers to lockdowns. We'll explore that with Dr. John Bow, emergency room physician and chief medical officer of Remote Health Solutions right after this. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And uh, this uh, interesting piece from Erica Komisar in the Wall Street Journal. She's a psychoanalyst, uh, author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. She is no... Uh, leftist ideologue lockdowns have a bright side for teens so we have focused uh on some of the negative impacts of lockdowns on kids particularly school lockdowns on their intellectual and social development but we've also discussed some of the research suggesting uh, increased uh, uh incidence of depression um some of the survey research that uh, has also come out of cdc uh but uh, so this is really interesting this uh, study that was released last month by the Institute for Family Studies, where Ms. Commissar is a contributing editor, found 56% of the more than 1,500 high school students they surveyed between May and July reported talking to their parents more during quarantine than before. 54% said their families have dinner more often. 46% reported spending more time with their siblings. 68% that their families said their families had become closer during the pandemic. So there's definitely the uh, negative effects associated with uh, increased screen time and isolation, perhaps, uh, some of which was occurring before COVID, of course, in our digital age. But um, uh, but because of some of the other dynamics that have actually occurred in terms of uh, time with family, dinners together, time with siblings, families getting closer, according to these teenagers, depression actually dropped. Share of teens reporting depression dropped from 27 percent in 2018 to 17% in the spring of 2020. When remote school was in session, it edged up to 20% over the summer when it wasn't. And the uh, Institute for Family Studies uh, study cites two reasons, the increased time with family and actually more sleep, more sleep. So, you know, maybe there's some unintended benefits of the lockdown policy as well for young people, which, uh, you know, if that holds up to scrutiny and peer review, I guess is encouraging. You want these things to be as um, as uh, as non-destructive as possible. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again, rejoined by Dr. John Bao, emergency room physician and the chief medical officer of Remote Health Solutions. I, I know, uh, Dr. John, you're in the emergency room, um, so this is uh, more of a uh, of a counseling type environment that we're talking about with teenagers and depression. But it is sort of interesting uh, that it, this counterintuitive development with respect to lockdowns. You know, um, it is interesting. I haven't read this study um, uh, specifically. I just kind of glanced through it. And what I've seen in my, uh, my clinical experience is I think that um, the, 
the quarantine, the isolation, and the lockdown have sort of magnified whatever was within the family already. And so if there was an opportunity to be able to um, have families together and, and grow and nurture and, and learn, then I think that those, it seems like those opportunities have in, increased. And, and I, I know that um, many of those patients, many of those students and those teens that, that I've had a chance to be able to talk to do talk about the fact that, man, I get to spend more time with my family. We're playing board games. We're learning about each other in ways that we really haven't done before. There's no sports on TV. There's no sports to go to. There's no um, activities that are taken away from their time. And they've been forced to be together for an extended amount of time. And that does one of two things. And we've, we've talked a lot about the negative side of it. So we definitely have seen some increased suicide rates and we've seen um, uh, increased abuse potential. We've seen a lot of negative things. But in the other side, the side where people are taking initiative in their families, um, we are seeing um, increased uh, benefit in those relationships, and those relationships have had a chance to grow stronger. I know that one of the things that I've counseled people with is to be able to remember the important things that you figured out during your lockdown. Was it that you didn't need to be doing it was probably time with your family. It was probably um, uh, not sitting in front of the TV or not running off to be able to go do some things, but instead people were in finding inventive and creative ways to be able to um, uh, spend time together. And I think that those lessons, as, as we move forward, I hope that people remember those because that strength in your family is, is irreplaceable. Give us some perspective from your day-to-day work as an emergency room physician. You know, what are you seeing now versus uh, perhaps at the spike in the spring and then at the trough uh, later on in the summer to early fall, uh, both with inter- both in terms of patients and infections, hospitalizations, as well as uh, just the experience of the healthcare system and, and talking to colleagues as well. Uh, and frontline healthcare workers like yourselves being able to handle what's occurring at present. Yeah. So I I live and practice in um, Utah. So when the initial um, spike came on the two coasts, we were pretty isolated. In fact, we saw a dramatic drop in our hospitalization, our ER visit, about half of what we'd normally see in any given day is what we were seeing. And then um, then people started coming back. We've seen sort of normalish volumes. And now what we're seeing is we are seeing uh, pretty normal volumes, but the, the definitely the rate of COVID cases has been increasing. And, and when I just finished my shift last night, I know that uh, our, um, our area where we have um, uh, COVID patients within the hospital, it, uh, it really, I mean, it was, it was full. And uh, we didn't have any more room up there, so we were, we were finding places for others. One thing that we saw for a while was we saw increasing cases without increasing severity. And I think as the number of cases has increased um, recently over the past few weeks, we have seen sort of a return of we have been maintaining pretty darn low mortality rates um, because we've learned a lot about the, the disease process. We've learned about the inflammation pathway that, that COVID um, really follows down. And we're able to do better with these patients than, than we did at first as we've just learned more. And so I think that, yes, we're seeing more cases. We're seeing um, even some more severe cases than we did for a while, but we're also seeing lower mortality rates. And that's what it really comes down to. How many people are, are being affected? Yes, but how many people are, are succumbing to or dying from the disease? I think we're, well, the data shows we're doing a much better job now, uh, at least per capita, than we were initially. And, and that's, has, 
universal across the board as I talk to my colleagues on, on both coasts and across the country. Uh, they're seeing the same things as well. We've, we've just learned a lot about this, and the process that we've gone through has been a tough one. But, uh, you know, I, we're resilient, and, we're, and we have this opportunity to look at data. We're going to study this virus for the next decade in depth, I'm sure, and we're going to learn a lot about how do we respond um, better. But we're learning fast, and we're, we're learning rapidly, and being able to test and evaluate and treat these patients well is really at the forefront of um, all the medical personnel. He is Dr. John Bao, emergency room physician, as you heard in Utah, and the chief medical officer of Remote Health Solutions. Dr. John Bao, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. Love stinks. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show, and I wanted to uh, get back to uh, a point about uh, Wayne County, uh, Michigan, uh, Michigan's Wayne County, Detroit, uh, and the certification of the Wayne County election that occurred yesterday, despite uh, some contentiousness from two of the Republican appointees on the Election Commission because of discrepancies between the uh, county's precincts and the uh, ballot counts, the ballot counts in 71 percent of the county's precincts, Wayne County's precincts didn't match the voter rolls. And um, that is a significant issue that uh, a couple of the commission members wanted investigated before they were going to sign off on the results, to certify the results in Wayne County. Well, of course, that uh, resistance to certifying the results coming out of Detroit led the usual suspects to level the usual charges as uh, Jenna Ellis explained on her appearance, Jenna Ellis is a senior legal consultant for the Trump campaign. She was on with Shannon Bream, Fox News, yesterday, and uh, she explained what happened in Wayne County. You have these uh, GOP board members who very rightly are saying that they are seeing significant discrepancies. We have reports of 71% of the precincts that the ballot count does not match the voter rolls. That's significant. That is not a political question. That's something that no matter if you're Democrat or Republican, you should be concerned about. Then in that interim two hours in the public comments, even a sitting congresswoman, Rashida Tlaib, are accusing these people Mm -hmm. of racism. They're getting threats. Then they Back off, And they say, OK, fine, then we'll allow the secretary of state, who is a political Democrat operative, to conduct an audit. That's backing off. This is absolutely mob rule at this point. And the president is right that these people need to have courage. And the state of Michigan absolutely should not certify their false results until we get to the bottom of this systematic and pervasive fraud. Everyone is asking the Trump campaign, Shannon, where's the evidence? Well, we have 234 pages of sworn affidavits. There is a letter from 40 Michigan state legislators that was filed yesterday mm-hmm. to the Secretary of State. They allege uh, dozens of allegations of, uh, of systematic irregularities, outright fraud, uh, voter intimidation, all yeah, of these tactics we, it, just right. in the state of Michigan. And uh, that doesn't even include the Michigan legislators that are also uh, moving to try to gather steam for a Gretchen Whitmer the Eva Perone of East Lansing impeachment. Uh, John Solomon on Lou Dobbs's program yesterday, John Solomon from Just the News, he gave Lou Dobbs his handle 
on where he thought the Trump lawsuits had the most prospect of success in which states. And he described. Remember, the Washington Post claimed 17 points uh, down. Trump was going into Election Day. There's right. a 20,000 vote spread. There are more than 230,000 people that were given a special designation to avoid voter ID rules this year. This was something done by unelected bureaucrats, not by the legislature. That's one state. I think Pennsylvania, there's a very good case already brewing where you can see the secretary of state has overstepped the bounds of, of what the legislature set. If the president can win on the constitutional argument there, then he has to show there's enough votes to close that 50,000 uh, gap that he sees in Pennsylvania. This is the damn problem. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. You know, I think we're falling into the trap of assuming that these Senate runoff elections on January 5th in Georgia will naturally go Republicans way because Georgia's Georgia and Trump potentially losing Georgia narrowly is an anomaly. I'm not so sure that we should be so cavalier and with so much on the line. Can you imagine if it's 50-50 or worse and Democrat socialists control both the executive and legislative branches of the federal government? Uh, Then you have no backstop, which is what the markets and, frankly, so many other people are banking on, that you have the Senate to bottle up some of the more egregious examples of leftist lunacy, I guess is the way to say it. This poll out, and I, I understand polling, I don't even need to do the qualifier. The race between David Perdue and John Ossoff, who I believe is the pajamas boy from the Obama administration, that was, you know, I mean, Purdue was up by a couple of points in the uh, November 3rd election. The Fox affiliate down in Atlanta has it 49-49, Purdue Ossoff. And uh, Kelly Loeffler, they have down one point to Raphael Warnock, the good reverend, who's the Democrat nominee there. So, I mean, these are very much heated contests. And given what we've seen from the concessions that uh, the Georgia Secretary of State made with respect to the administration of the election in Georgia that arguably handed Georgia to Joe Biden if it holds up, and the resources that will be coming into Georgia from the rest of the nation to try to do a repeat of November 3rd on January 5th. I don't think we should take these races lightly. There's too much at stake to take them lightly. There's been a lot more coming out about Ralph Warnock because he's lesser known, the good reverend. I mean, some of those things this guy has said in the past are remarkable. I mentioned yesterday he's sort of a cheap imitation of Reverend Jeremiah Wright up here in Chicago, uh, Obama's spiritual advisor. But Jeremiah Wright never came close to a Senate seat. Ralph Warnock is. This was uh, Ralph Warnock again earlier in the week talking about our need to get over whiteness. Really? America needs to repent for its worship of whiteness. And uh, a recent sermon that came to light, this is from about uh, nine years ago, 2011, about uh, serving one master, so to speak. America, nobody can serve God and the military. You can't serve God and money. You cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. America, choose ye this day whom you will serve. Hmm. I'm going to be a little bit more charitable to that exhortation. But actually, uh, render unto Caesars what is Caesars and unto God what is God's, right, Reverend? It seems to imply you can't be in the military and serve God. You can't uh, make money and serve God. I, I think he's maybe maybe he's trying to to use that as an example of the uh, 
render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and God's what is God's. But I, I don't know, because he is really a far left identitarian politician slash reverend. Let's find out a little bit more about him. David Harsani's given him a look. He's a senior writer for National Review and author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. David, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. A- am I right that John Ossoff is Pajamas Boy from uh, the <laughs> Obamacare commercials? That is that is right, isn't it? With respect to Warnock, you have written about him. This is a guy who uh, has said some pretty wild things and, and repenting for your whiteness if you're white in America, is just the tip of it. Right. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to repent for my whiteness. But I do know some crazy rhetoric when I see it. And his sermons on Israel, now, I don't know how important that will be in Georgia. I think more important probably with evangelical Christians and the Jewish community there. But it is pretty wild. He Basically, it's blood libel. I mean, he says Israelis go around shooting people for no reason whatsoever, which obviously goes back a long time in anti-Semitic speech. Now, I'm not saying he's an anti-Semite, maybe doesn't know what he's saying, but he should, is, I guess, what I want to say. And uh, your, your su- assessment of, of the race, uh, more generally, I know we're still in the throes of the presidential race, and that necessarily includes Georgia, but am I being um, unfair to Senate Republicans and the Republican Party by saying it just doesn't seem like that there's uh, enough energy and focus on those two runoff elections that are close at this point and have, have so much riding on them. No, I think that you're exactly right. I mean, we don't know yet what Georgia is going to be a battleground state moving forward. Maybe this is the new normal for Georgia. But also you have a bunch of other factors going on. You might have Trump voters who are angry and come out in droves. You might have Trump voters dissuaded from voting. We don't know how that's going to play out. We can't really trust pollsters anymore, I don't think. But generally, I think that the state's a lot closer, obviously, than it ever was. And perhaps it's on a trajectory to turn blue. So I don't know why Republicans are as confident as they seem. They also have, frankly, two candidates who aren't the strongest. And all those things matter. No, in in fact, I mean, uh, you know, the handle right now is that there is a bit of depression setting in among Trump voters and that they're going to need to hear from him about the importance of these runoff elections to ensure they turn out with the same enthusiasm that they did for him and that Democrats are probably angling to turn out for Ossoff and Warnock. I'm thinking that maybe Republicans have learned somewhat of a lesson on mail-in ballots where I think they probably avoided them. It's pretty clear that they did, and perhaps they won't do the same in this runoff, but we'll see. And, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal uh, is talking about um, the uh, presidential race now. The Wall Street Journal opined that uh, vulnerability is not the same thing as rigged. Can see the point when uh, they're referencing, of course, Trump's pronouncements about Dominion voting systems, some of the machines, as well as perhaps Smartmatic software platform, the opportunity for manipulation. We've seen some curious things happen just in the last couple of days with memory cards that have been found in two different counties in Georgia that moved the race a little bit closer. We have a bunch of statistical anomalies that all were down to the benefit of Joe Biden, particularly in four key metropolitan areas in swing states. That seem, that's one of the anomalies. And yet uh, the Wall Street Journal is suggesting that, you know, it's time for President Trump to prove up on some of these accusations. I think we all want proof, but there seems to be impatience even from the Journal editorial board with respect to how long it takes to pull together information in the form that it needs to be in to be compelling in a court of law. And I wonder if there should be more people essentially arguing, but wait wait a second, you know, we're a couple of weeks out. You still have a couple of weeks before we get into certifying the election. Yeah, at some point, yes, Sidney Powell is making some big claims on cable news and Donald Trump is making some big claims on Twitter based on the claims that Sidney Powell is making. But um, they're on the clock to prove up. So why don't you just chill and let them pursue their legal rights and prove up or not? 
Right. I guess I'm of two minds. One is that I'm highly skeptical that any of that's going to work out for them. I just don't buy it, really. Mm -hmm. But I haven't gone down every rabbit hole and looked at, at everything. So I'm open to the possibility. Donald Trump has said a lot of things in the past I thought were crazy, and they turned out to be true. So um, I'm open-minded about that. On the other hand, I'm also not one of these people who thinks that there is some constitutional need for me to call Biden president-elect or, or for, for a concession right away. If they're going through the legal channels to make their case uh, to contest certain elections, then that's their right to do. And, and there's no reason for us to rush. In January, we'll have a new president, and that'll be that. This idea that this is an assault on democracy is nonsense. An assault on democracy is when you claim that the president is a traitor and you give no proof and you constantly say that for four years. He's going through legal channels. I mean, he's making a case. He's going to make it legally. Now, if it doesn't turn out, then he should leave. If it does, then we have to deal with it. It's that simple, I think. Yeah, uh, it, just in terms of uh, you know undermining democracy and so forth, because uh, the vanguard of, of our representative republic, this is the same vanguard that was uh, carrying on about foreign interference in our election right up until Election Day and, and the perceived outcome from their perspective. And now foreign interference in elections is part of a, you know, a bygone era. That, that is a concern that is in the distance. That's something for historians to talk about now, David. It's not a concern for us going forward. I mean, Biden's on the phone with foreign leaders all over the place. I mean, it's just in the news. It's not even, no one even has a problem with it. We, we learned that uh, they were meeting with Palestinian representatives and Iranian representatives over the past few years. It's just insane, these double standards. I, I, that, I mean, according to the General Flynn standard, wouldn't that be a potential violation of the Logan Act, the Never Enforced Logan Act? Here's another thing that makes me laugh. I mean, I was told for years that a few Facebook ads turned the entire election and somehow I don't even understand how that was supposed to work. But anyway, now I'm told that it's impossible for poll workers to do anything to affect an election. But yet Facebook ads overturned an entire election and we spoke about it for four years. Right. Yeah, right. The people actually that have access to the machines counting the votes, they are powerless. But Facebook button ads on Facebook. They made. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's laughable if our free society wasn't at stake. It would be, I guess, more funny. I, I mean, CNN is sitting there, and, and I rarely watch it, but they're talking about assaults on democracy and how we, we maybe will make it through. And we spent four years saying that the president was a seditious Manchurian candidate for, for Russia. Never provided it really any proof that that was true. I, I have to I have to correct you on stopping the clock at four years because Jim Clyburn, uh, Biden's political savior, five days after the election, was still making the assertion that Trump's concession is a pro lack of a concession is a problem because he's still taking his orders from Putin. I mean, he literally said that on Jake Tapper's show. And you have Obama saying some kind of similar stuff about Putin. Meanwhile, he he, he had granted Putin so much more leverage, uh, leeway than, than Trump had in any kind of real policy matter way. Having him back on the scene, it's a, it's a good reminder. To, sharpens the picture up, you know, of why Trump became president and why uh, his presidency wasn't as, as bad as a lot of people think, I, my perspective, at least. Indeed. David Harsani, senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. David, thanks for joining us. Anytime. Thank you. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I just uh, referenced this in our discussion with David Harsani from National Review as we were going through some of the arguments that have just disappeared into the ether coming from the left, like foreign interference in an election, uh, and others that persist. Jim Clyburn, after the November 3rd election, this is five days after, on with Jake Tapper, and uh, the arguments of the left that persist because misdirection is still required in some areas. Misdirection away from what Democrats did for three and a half years through uh, surveillance of the Trump campaign uh, and, and Trump administration officials uh, combined with the Mueller investigation uh, versus what they want you to believe about President Trump, even after his apparent defeat. At least they were calling it his defeat last week. So it doesn't matter to me whether or not he concedes. What matters to me is whether or not the Republican Party will step up and help us uh, preserve the integrity of this democracy. Mm -hmm. We have been the envy of the world, but we have also uh, received a lot of disdain from places around the world. See, I'm old enough to remember uh, Nikita Khrushchev. I remember that speech at the United Nations when he looked out and says, we will bury you. I will never forget that. And so I don't understand how uh, Republicans uh, can allow uh, Putin uh, to dictate uh, the fortunes of this country. And that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. Putin is dictating the fortunes of this country by, uh, I guess, telling President Trump to challenge the results of the election. And the Republican Party needs to intercede to, uh, to, to force the hand of Trump and, by extension, Putin. That's your number three in the House, Jim Clyburn. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Eric Felton, correspondent for Real Clear Investigations and the James Beard award-winning author of How's Your Drink? Eric, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, how are you doing? Good. Um, So uh, Jim Clyburn uh, persists with the Manchurian candidate argument five days after the election. And uh, any notion that that, uh, there is a reckoning still due uh, via the Durham investigation or by any other avenue for FBI, CIA, the uh, intelligence community for the last four years of uh, activities, that is um, evidence-free conspiracy mongering, according to that same left. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's still the, the line being pushed that there's some grand conspiracy uh, between uh, Donald Trump and the Russians. And yet at the same time, a, an insistence on refusing to say that the FBI in any way spied on the Trump campaign four years ago, you would think that if there is such a conspiracy going on, that you'd be quite happy to admit that the FBI spied in an effort to, you know, to expose the conspiracy. And yet it goes on and on that to even suggest that the FBI spied on the Trump campaign is itself a conspiracy theory. And um, we're repeatedly told that it's been debunked, even though it's been proved conclusively. Right. I mean, that's that is the remarkable thing. It's it's 180 degrees from what the D.C. press corps is saying. And I don't if that isn't agitprop, then I don't know what is. Uh, And not, not just with respect to with respect to the spying piece of it, but also with here we are again saying 
with, with a, another example of projection, right? Th- this is about the peaceful transition of power, Eric, and we need to preserve, protect and, 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 and uh, maintain our representative republic, our democracy at, at stake, the legitimacy, be its, legitimacy of it. But it wasn't when the outgoing administration in 2016 was surveilling the incoming administration. Here, democracy at stake because you have potentially an outgoing administration pursuing their legal rights transparently for all to see in courts of law. Right. And, and you know, if we talk about transitions, um, we had uh, transition activities with regard to um, President-elect uh, Trump four years ago where the FBI was going in and giving a briefing on intelligence and the CIA and the FBI. And then Jim Comey stays behind to confront uh, Trump with the, the question of uh, materials that had been gathered by uh, Christopher Steele, including the you know prostitutes urinating on the bed, uh, P-tape uh, uh, allegation, materials that were um, put together by a private spy paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee. And the FBI is confronting the president-elect with these um, phony allegations at a time when it, it was part of the, defense, the defensive briefing, intelligence briefing being given to the president-elect, part of the transition. And so to hear now uh, all of this concern about uh, a proper transition, yes, a proper transition is a good thing and ought to have been uh, something that people respected four years ago when the transition was used as an opportunity to try to um, keep going investigations that were uh, predicated on phony information in the first place. Uh, and uh, earlier this week, uh, Sean Davis over at the Federalist uh, referencing a source, uh, I guess, close to the Durham investigation that spoke anonymously to the Federalist saying the Durham investigation is all but over. Uh, Durham doesn't want to uh, get crossed with an incoming Biden administration. So that's an investigation that's going nowhere, uh, as I suggested. Um, do, do you what's your what's your reaction to that? And, and uh, if that is true, the implications of a German investigation that just fizzles out in this lame, potentially lame duck period? Yeah, I I just don't see, you know, from a political point of view, um, you know, sort of Washington politics, I, I don't see Durham taking any action at this point. If he's left it this far and this long, um, you know, he's not going to be in a position once the Biden administration is in place um, to continue any such investigation. So, well, then, then, um, then what was he doing all this time? Because he had to know he was on a clock. You know, I think that's going to be a, a story that will be well worth covering and um, that the reporter who manages to get that story uh, will will have a, a, a hell of a story to tell, you know, what happened with the Durham investigation. Was it really just a matter that uh, there wasn't anything provable there, or were there politics at, at play 
Um, you know, I don't think we know right now what happened, mm. um, but it's something that is going to be worth finding out. Yeah, I would say. I mean, uh, I know Jim Clyburn's focus on Vlad Putin and conspiracy theories, but I would say the perception that the rule of law doesn't apply to those with enough uh, status inside the beltway. That's what undermines our representative republic, I think, in the minds of many Americans. Uh, he is Eric Felton. Correspond for Real Clear Investigations, realclearinvestigations.com. The James Beard award-winning James Beard award-winning author of How Is Your Drink, Eric Felton. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me on. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Victoria Sparts is one of the 14 newly minted pro-life House Republican women. Victoria Sparts. This was a Republican hold seat in Indiana, but she held it nonetheless. Uh, this is Indianapolis suburbs. And Victoria Sparts is also a Ukrainian immigrant. So uh, this is one of those great perspectives of somebody who lived under a command control system, lived under socialist tyranny, and has something to say about what she sees in this country. Uh, recent appearance on uh, Fox. I grew up in socialist country. It actually was, uh, you know, socialistic republic of Ukraine. I was saying, you know, in my 42 years, I grew up in socialism. I saw what happens when it runs out of money, and it's not pretty. And now I came to America 20 years ago with a suitcase after meeting my husband in the train in Europe, and he is a raisin-born Hoosier. You know, and now we're building socialism. I'm kind of going full circles. I can tell you what is going to be next. It's very sad for me to see that. And that made me, as a mother of two daughters, it made me get involved and do something about it, because that's not very good for our country. No, it's not. And I love that uh, a woman with that accent is representing uh, a Hoosier land. Uh, she goes on to talk a little bit more about this, about what you can anticipate. And let's look at any country that had socialism. Every country failed because this system is not sustainable. This system created a lot of destructions and misery. So we have to be smarter than that. You know, we, we're not going to change. There are only two systems. You have freedom and free enterprise, and you have system where government decides and political elites on top how we're going to live and what we're going to do. And, you know, if you think about it, we all, we're not equal. We all want different things. We want to have equal rights to pursue happiness, but we want all different things. So we have different, I, you know, we don't even want to go to travel to the same countries. If the government forces us to be equal, you have to suppress. So every socialistic system, it's about suppression. And we have to value our freedoms because we're the greatest republic that ever existed. Uh, if uh, we could get... Um that sort of sanity from more of the suburbs, then perhaps we wouldn't have such concerns about uh, the onslaught and uh, the onset of socialism. She's exactly right, too. Anybody who knows anything recognizes that and it, it, in any system of government, it's force. Government is coercion. Those terms are synonymous, government and coercion, government and force. And so if you don't have restraints on government, as we do enshrined in our Bill of Rights, then you're left to the 
whimsy of the political class when it comes to how much suppression the government will inflict upon the citizenry. She understands and she lived through it. Let's hope we don't have to live through what Victoria Sparks lived through before she came to America. For more on uh, what the prospects on that, we're pleased to be joined by Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics, Inside the America First Plan to Revive Our Economy. Steve, thanks for joining us. Hi, Dan. By the way, by pure coincidence, that's who I had dinner with last night. Really? Victoria Sparks. It's so funny because I'm listening to this woman talk, and when we had dinner, it was with a bunch of other, you know, newly elected freshman uh, Republicans who will be sworn in in January. There are a lot of them, by the way. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, yeah. I think the class like 40 new Republicans. It was a big, big year for Republicans at the congressional level. And anyway, I was just listening to this woman talk with, you know, that. I think I think she was from I think Ukraine. She was from Ukraine, yeah. and I'm thinking, wow, this is awesome. We actually have someone who understands the evils of socialism, communism, uh, progressivism, whatever you want to call it, and she's going to be a, a superstar. And I love that. And her husband is an Indiana farmer. You know, third generation, that's just great, only in America. Exactly. And he was at dinner last night, too, and just, you know, beaming at his wife. But I think she will be a voice of, of real um, sanity and caution. And, you know, when you played that clip, it reminded me that, you know, when I uh, give speeches around the country about freedom and free enterprise and, you know, let's not go to government-run health care and all of these things, uh, the people who always come up to me after my speeches, especially when it's at colleges and universities, are the foreign kids who said, oh, yeah, I came from Poland or I came from hum- Hungary or I came from Cuba. <laughs> Why? What is with these Americans? How stupid are they? <laughs> they want to adopt. I came here to get rid of away from these socialist systems. And now Americans like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris want to adopt them. I, I want to uh, go to the question that um, I guess the, some of those foreign students ask you after your speeches. Uh, how stupid are we? Because um, we're going to explore that question potentially uh, in, in great depth over the next four years. Uh, Michael Strain from the American Enterprise Institute, which is uh, really becoming a more and more difficult uh, so-called... Uh, Michael cent- Strain is... is a, just stop right there. I mean, he, he is a very, very bad economist. He just doesn't get it. When we come back with uh, economist, Wall Street Journal economist Steve Moore, I want to uh, tackle this piece by uh, the American Enterprise Institute's Michael Strain uh, and uh, the uh, COVID relief package he suggests get uh, Steve Moore's reaction. That'll happen right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Before the break, we're talking to economist, Wall Street Journal columnist Steve Moore about uh, American Enterprise Institute's Michael Strain's economic recovery plan, or, or basically COVID relief 2.0, because. He's got a piece out about uh, what needs to happen right now with respect to COVID relief. He he, uh, writes, the outlines of a compromise are clear. Another round of PPP, perhaps even targeted at even smaller businesses, say with less than 300 employees, spending for public health measures, including increasing testing, expansions of unemployment insurance benefit duration and eligibility, supplementing state benefits by a few hundred dollars per week, offering businesses protection against COVID-related lawsuits, expanding food stamps, offering grants to state and local governments to avoid layoffs and help schools reopen. 
he pegs the price tag on that at about a trillion dollars. Right. I mean, this is basically just straight kind of Keynesian nonsense that, you know, the way you get out of a an economic crisis is by spending money. Uh, and, you know, that's what Michael Strain believes. He's just completely wrong. And by the way, as you know, we've been working with uh, your, uh, you know, local professor there, uh, Casey Mulligan at University of Chicago. Yeah. And we estimate that because Trump had the wisdom not to agree to another massive two trillion dollar spending bill, which would have included what Michael Strain wants, which is expanded unemployment benefits. We estimate there'd be five million fewer Americans working today if Trump had agreed to that deal. Because look, folks, this isn't complicated. If you pay people not to work, guess what? They won't work. And there wouldn't have been as many jobs. There wouldn't have been as many people going back to work. So, you know, I I despair when when I hear that, because what we need to do is just get businesses open. (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, I've said it almost every week on your show. It doesn't matter how much money the government prints. If people aren't working, if businesses aren't open, you're not producing anything. It doesn't matter how much paper you have to print money. It's not going to, you know, revive an economy. But and, by the way, it's not just Michael Strain, but the chief medical uh, advisor for Joe uh, Biden said, you know, he, he as you know, he wants a four to six week lockdown. Yeah, the economy. Complete yeah. lockdown. Everything shut down. Even your show is shut down. Okay, and he wants that. And then he says, oh, and there's an easy way to soften the blow of this. We'll just have the government write two trillion dollars of checks. And I'm like, again, are people that stupid? And the guy's a a professor at the University of Minnesota and he's the top advisor to Joe Biden. He thinks we could just shut everything down and print money and everything will be fine. Well, this is an, an important aspect of this, too. We've explored it a bit with sort of experts in particular sectors, but maybe a macro response. The, the tail on these things, you know, we're, we're looking at what's happening now, what may happen. But one of the things that people need to contemplate in terms of how willing they're uh, how willing they are uh, for how long to endure some of these insane lockdown policies, which we're obviously f- in full 2.0 lockdown right now yep. around yep. the country, is the tail uh, on the uh, the impact of these policies with respect to eliminating indoor dining and, and restaurants and so many other retail businesses at 25 or 50 percent capacity. You know, the longer this goes on, obviously, the longer it takes to recover. But but for just one example, the restaurant industry, John Taffer, who's an expert in this industry and a you know reality TV show star yeah, now yeah. with Bar Rescue, he, he suggested that, you know, maybe if we didn't if you didn't see lockdowns, uh, the restaurant industries that have been decimated in big urban centers could be rebounding. Uh, by the second quarter of next year. But he said when Chicago went to their second round of lockdowns a few weeks ago of restaurants, he said, you're really making a huge mistake. That is going to have an exponentially longer tail than the first lockdowns did with respect to businesses around the country. And I just want to get some macro perspective on the tail. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, first of all, I'll just use an analogy of a, you know, a boxing match and, you know, you're, you're in a heavyweight match and boom, you get it right on the chin. You fall down on the canvas and then, you know, it's he's down for the count. No, he gets back up, you know, and now he's you know, a little bit dazed. Right. And, and then what he gets him is that second punch. And that's exactly what's happening here. These businesses took a huge wallop right on the chin back in you know March and April, May of last year and, and into the summer. And they're finally, you know, and heroically, finally getting, you know, back on their feet, getting business, you know, rehiring people and all of those things. And then boom, I mean, this is that second punch that's going to put a lot of those businesses out of business. Now, I'll say this, I, you know, you're going to think I'm a wimp or something. I don't like to go, to, I haven't gone to an indoor restaurant 
in four or five months. I don't feel comfortable doing that. We eat outside a lot. We go to restaurants that have outside seating. My point is, who should make that decision? Right. <laughs> do I need the governor or the mayor or the health official to tell me what I can do? No, we're adults. We can, you know, if you want to go to a restaurant, fine. You know, if you want to go indoors, I don't feel comfortable doing it. But that should be the choice of it. This is America, damn it. The, the question about where we're tracking, uh, and obviously the, this latest round of lockdowns complicates this, but you've uh, contended in a recent piece that um, – the uh, media trying to uh, mau mau the recovery from the spring to present uh, is is a mistake. That things are not uh, slowing down, uh, coming to a halt, necessitating. You mean tri- on the economy? Yeah, trillion dollar infusions. Oh my God, this yes, is, this is the greatest recovery in the history of the United States. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm serious. This is incredible what we're seeing. I mean, we've seen massive increase in employment. We've created you know, over 12 million jobs in six months. That's nowhere near where all the experts at Congressional Budget Office and the Federal Reserve and all the Wall Street experts, they said we'd, we'd create the, half that number. We had the 33% growth. We had, you know, in the last jobs report, we got a million private sector jobs. We lost 250,000 government jobs, which, by the way, is a good thing. Um, this economy is a rocket ship right now. And the only thing that can slow it down is shutdowns. And, uh, you know, I think it is curious they want to do this now so that what Joe Biden can come in if he wins. And by the way, I haven't given up on this presidential race. But, you know, if it's Biden and he's going to come in and then he's going to ride in on his horse and say, you know, remember how bad it was under under uh, Trump. I mean, they, I, I do think there was an intentional uh, design by by the, the leftists to make the economy as bad as possible. And I, do, I actually do think, too, if that unemployment report had come out, if the, if the election had been one week later. There is no question in my mind Donald Trump would have would have won the race because the economy is really on a tear right now. And it's on a tear because Trump is just letting businesses do their thing. They're, he's letting them reopen and he's letting, you know, the, the stores and the churches and the schools and the playgrounds are open. It's Democrats around the country. This is a divided country, folks. Democrats are shutting down their states. Republicans are keeping their states open. And, and the, which states have the highest unemployment rates? The 10 states of the 10 states with the highest unemployment rates, nine of them are run by Democratic governors. He is Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics, dining partner of Victoria Spatz, uh, Sparks, uh, recent uh, Indiana Congresswoman. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate All right, it. Have a great week. Bye. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show as we close out this Wednesday edition. We're revisiting uh, so many of the issues we revisited in the early spring with lockdowns and school shutdowns and have been revisiting intermittently. Uh, depending on the state, over the intervening six months, right? Well, uh, Megyn Kelly, uh, you remember Megyn Kelly. Sure you do. She uh, made some news yesterday. She's done with New York. She and her husband are pulling their uh, boys out of the school they attend in New York. Why? Well, the last straw was this uh, letter that was circulated among the parents of the school her boys attend in New York City. That was uh, 
part of the promotion to, quote, reform white children, unquote. A saying of this letter on her podcast, uh, Megan Kelly said um, in, in the school, the schools have always been far left, which doesn't align with my own ideology, but I really didn't care. Well, that was your first mistake, Megan. She went on. Most of my friends are liberals. It's fine. I come from Democrats as a family. Number, uh, that's your second mistake, Megan. No, it's not fine. Not that you can't be friends with them, but but that you think this is all very innocent, particularly those in charge of formative institutions like the schools that have become totalitarian reeducation centers that you're just now uh, realizing as somebody who's been in the media for as long as you have paying attention to this stuff ostensibly. It's remarkable. Uh, I'm not at all offended by the ideology, and I lean center left on some things, but they've gone around the bend. I mean, they've gone off the deep end. How off the deep end? Well, she read an excerpt from the letter she and other parents received, written by Nalaya Weber, the executive director of Orleans Public Education Network. There is a killer cop sitting in every school where white children learn. At least one of those white kids is going to grow up to be a killer cop. I see. They gleefully soak in their whitewashed history that downplays the Holocaust of indigenous native peoples and Africans in the Americas. They happily believe their all white spaces exist as a matter of personal effort and willingly use violence against black bodies to keep those spaces white. As black bodies drop like flies around us by violence at white hands, how can we in any of our minds conclude that whites are all right? White children are left unchecked and unbothered in their schools, homes, and communities to join, advance, and protect systems that take away black life. I'm tired of white people reveling in their state-sanctioned depravity, snuffing out black life with no consequences. Where's the urgency for school reform for white kids being indoctrinated in black death and protected from the consequences? Uh, And where are the schools that are doing that? Okay. Where are the government-sponsored reports looking into how white mothers are racially and culturally deprived children who think black death is okay? And so on and so forth. That was enough for Megyn Kelly. And it should be enough for any sensible person that is not interested in instilling hate in children, black, white, and other, in that school and every other school. And it calls to mind the question I asked at the outset of these lockdowns in the spring and uh, perhaps uh, should be revisited now, and not just because of COVID-19, because of what actually happens in those schools regardless of COVID-19, which is... Is it that you really want to break your kids back into their schools? Or is this the opportune time to break them out of those schools? Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.